commercializing pilgrimage sites was a really huge deal, right? Because even even on churches and cathedrals on the way to places in the Holy Land, if you could get pilgrims to stop at your church in your city and not down the road, it would be a great boom for you know for for income for for making money. And so things like as you said, like relics and claims to the true cross and other things were were ways to kind of attract and you know bits of saints and things like that were ways to attract pilgrims to come to your church and not to other ones and like so the Fra- the franciscans um there's throughout the 17th 18th century there's big conversations you know because uh, this is the ottoman empire really is in charge politically of much of that region but they kind of um are petitioned frequently by Catholic sects to, to have control over the, the holy sites. And the Franciscans basically become the traditional custodians of, of, of Jerusalem. And like, yeah, very quickly, you know, pilgrimage is a, of course, a, an important devotional practice, but it's also, as you said, it's also a commercial practice. And those two things run in parallel. I mean, sometimes they run like upsettingly in parallel in the 19th century, for example, when um, like, middle-class British tourists, tourists, British pilgrims start going to Jerusalem. Some of them are quite astonished by the fact that this scene they've read about in the Bible is full of like people trying to sell you shit, you know? <laughs> um, but, you know, a big part of that is is um, marks that you've been. And so the non-tattooed version of that is what's called pilgrim badges. So I can ask, um, ask listeners to Google those, but they are essentially the kind of pewter or uh, metal or sometimes more fine you know, in in more extravagant versions basically kind of badges to show that you'd been on a pilgrimage and it was something that you could bring back home with you um there are various bible verses about you know taking some place of you know taking jerusalem into your heart and this would be a little proxy um and of course tattooing a because it can't get lost b because it has that kind of spiritual resonance of being with you permanently becomes very quickly a part of the trade. Now, like Christian tattooing goes back a very long way. We've got, um, for example, an eighth century mummy, um, another British museum mummy actually from Sudan who has a St. Michael um, image or, or, or kind of uh, mark on her inner thigh. So there's Christian tattooing right in the early North African Christian tradition. And so the Copts, as part of those traditions, I mean, also there's indigenous. Um, like Bedouin, for example, North African tattooing as well, both in visible in Jerusalem and in North Africa. So those um, tattooers who have learned to tattoo and, and begun tattooing in, in Egypt and in North Africa move to Jerusalem and basically set themselves up essentially as a, you know, as a kind of service to tattoo visitors. Now, there is some um, interesting, like there's at least one account in the old Bailey records of an Englishman getting arrested for like housebreaking, <laughs> who is who is doing quote unquote the Jerusalem mark back in London. So this is a practice that sort of exports itself from Jerusalem as well. I reckon at the moment that guy might be the oldest recorded English tattooer in the world, right? <laughs> this housebreaker from London. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, as basically as far as as far as kind of professional tattooing on European bodies is concerned, like we can really take this, this pilgrimage moment as definitive. I mean, there were pilgrims, pilgrim tattoos also in other pilgrimage sites like Loretto in Italy, a very kind of key site of Catholic pilgrimage, but Jerusalem and to a lesser extent, Bethlehem and Nazareth, like is what we're talking about here. The image, like um, 
let me read you because I think like this is a good um, a good example of of uh, of what this is involved. So we heard from from Carswell there about these blocks, and the designs were um, essentially carved into. You know, we don't have paper or sensor transfers, so the Razooks and clearly others carved their designs into these olive wood stamps, and they were everything from the standard design, which is called a Jerusalem cross, which is like a big cross in the middle and four crosses around it, symbol of the Franciscans. It symbolizes proselytization of Christianity, basically, right? One big, from Jerusalem, the main cross, outwards go these other crosses. So that's a very common design. We also have lots of saints. St. George, for example, is very popular. There are images, of course, of, of Mary. There are images of various miracles, images of various pieces of architecture around the uh, cities of the pilgrimage sites as well, like like the Dome of the Rock, for example, or the Holy Sepulchre. So, um, yeah, these these are uh, these blocks are the way that we have the designs, and you'd go and you know, essentially you'd have some kind of cust, you know, some flash, I guess we'd call it, really equivalent. But you'd also be able to customize it. Many of these guys, uh, and it really is all men, have their um, have their dates of their pilgrimages tattooed on them. So this is starting. And we'll come to the earliest ones in a second, but this is starting in the late 1500s, and it really kicks in in the early 1600s. Um, uh, so the design is done by blocks. It, it's uh, pricked over um, with a, a series of hand needles, and I want to read you this. This is from 1658. Uh, it's from a French pilgrim called Jean de Thévenot, and um, he's also going at Easter, and he basically describes the process. And this would have been pretty consistent really from uh, as early as 1600 right the way through to uh, the the birth of electricity, I suppose. So Jean de de Tevenot, who's a French pilgrim, says, quote, "Um, there are several wooden moulds. Getting marks put upon our arms as commonly all pilgrims do, the the Christians of Bethlehem do that. They have several wooden moulds of which you may choose that which pleases you best. Then they fill it with coal dust, apply it to your arm, so they leave upon it the same mark of what is cut in the mould, like potato block printing, right? Like mm-hmm. you'd have a primary school. Yeah, yeah, After yeah. that, with the left hand, they take hold of your arm and stretch the skin of it. And in the right hand, they have a little cane with two needles fastened in it, from which time to time they dip into the ink, mixed with ox- ox's gall, so that's like the bile of, a, of an ox, and prick your arm all along the lines that are marked by the wooden mould. This, without doubt, is painful and commonly causes a slight fever, which is soon over. The arm, in the meantime, for two or three days, continues swelled three times as big as it ordinarily is. After they've pricked all along the said lines, they wash the arm and observe if there be anything wanting. They then begin again and sometimes do it three times over. Like, even even like 350 years ago, Tom, tattooers are like going, oh, I've just missed a bit. We're nearly finished. We're nearly done. <laughs> just got to do the white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I love that. Yeah. So they begin again and sometimes three times over. When they've done, they wrap up your arm very straight and there grows a crust upon it, which falling off three or four days after, the marks remain blue and never wear out because the buck, the blood mingling with the texture of ink and ox's gall remains the mark under the skin. So that's like basically exactly the same as getting hand poked tattooed now, right? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I was actually, I was, because I was going to ask because obviously when we talk about like, different regions or different periods i'm always like curious about what ink they're using and obviously you mentioned it there like w- were they just like mixing the ox's gall with coal dust like just to eat, 
as a mixture and like tattooing it into the skin. That's it. Yeah, that's okay. basically it. So the so the, the 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 bile is essentially sort of sort of sterile, right? Because it's come out of a, the inside of an animal. It's it's um, going to work as a suspension, and you're going to use this kind of carbon uh, ink to uh, to be able to to produce the the, the, the tattoo. And like I, I've joked about this before, but I really wish at tattoo conventions, you know, like we, ha- you know, as I've said before, there was a po- period. It still sort of happens, really, sometimes. Go to a tattoo convention and you'll see Samoa and Tahitian and New Zealand tattooers in their kind of traditional clothing doing very traditional tattooing. I want to see a guy doing this. I want to see a guy in a fez <laughs> with his, with his, with his like, like pop, pop down to the butchers, get yourself some ox gall and, and get doing that old school shit. For Authentic some reason, old school shit. For some reason, you strike me as a man who owns a fez. Actually, I should get a fez. Really, I should get myself a fez. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, don't you, don't you think so? Don't you think like we should reclaim old school? Like, old school should only re- uh, uh, like refer to this from now on. <laughs> <laughs>